Eddie Hobbs is a famous Irish celebrity, financial advisor, journalist, author. Um, he has a new book out, uh, The First Heresy. Now, that's a uh, more fiction thing. That'd be down my, my, my street now, to be honest with you. I'll, I'll definitely have to pick that up. And you had um, a couple of books out a few years ago, more probably on the topic of tonight, which was a good one. You had um, Own Our Oil, uh, The Fight for Irish Economic Freedom. That was one of his other books on, on economics. Well, um, thanks for coming on, Eddie. It's great to have you. Uncertain times Absolutely. we're in. So I was going to say maybe put people's mind at ease, but <laughs> we'll see yeah. how it goes. Anyway, you correctly predicted the financial crash in 08. A couple of years beforehand, you were kind of blowing the whistle or the, raising the flag on the, the economy overheating. In your opinion, what's the outlook today? Are we approaching a similar time? or No, it's very different. Ireland is different and... The nature of the challenge is much different. Now, it's very easy to go to the extreme and all these things and start there at the worst possible outcome. And we could spend the night just scaring the shit out of each other, right? There's no point in doing that at the moment. I'll deal with those anyway. But um, I, I, by the way, I'm just the reason I'm saying that is that back in the day, I spent a lot of time looking at um, uh, oil economics and I got involved in the, um, the, the sort of peak oil movement and uh, I was rubbing shoulders with leading geologists and economists and environmentalists and all the other ologists you can ma- imagine. Actually chaired one of their international conferences but I got so immersed in it that uh, I went to um, I went on holidays down to West Cork with a book called um, a, a World Made by Hand and uh, I spent I spent two weeks looking at the ceiling wondering how I was going to break all this information to my poor unfortunate children uh, and then I realized that I had committed the cardinal error of spending too much time in the extreme end of things and not looking at the more kind of realistic outcome of stuff so I just want to say that at the outset and I'll just 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 deal with that so like the, the way I explained this I'm coming at this from a financial perspective but this is multifaceted everything is interlinked socially uh, economically, financially, uh, even spiritually, you could argue, you know, the, the, the kind of the waves of, of mood that we have throughout the human population, all of that is linked together. So to, to, to just go down one channel without understanding that it's all interconnected would be an error in thinking. We're at the end of a 50 year cycle. Uh, we're in an interregnum, an intervening, an interregnum, you know, between kings uh, it, to the next long economic cycle. The next long economic cycle, I think, is going to be uh, very interesting. It's going to be full of uh, converging technologies, converging things like AI and, um, you know, biotechnology and and all of that, and also uh, a different way of of, of organising the planet and all of that. So there's definitely another industrial revolution coming. I think that there's going to be an enormous struggle on the social side of all of that, between those that um, value liberal freedom and those that want to try and organise the planet into a kind of an authoritarian system, kind of an Elysian system where the global elite with their planes and all the rest of it are basically dictating play to the battery hens, which is the rest of us, and then the useless class underneath it that actually have no use at all and are just, um, you know, they're they're just basically treated as non-active members of society. So there's a definitely that's definitely happening, uh, that kind of battle, that tension. And uh, when you see the change, for example, in Italy, you begin to understand that, you know, people don't take this stuff lying down. So the idea that we'll all go to zero and we won't have our assets by 2030, the the, the Schwab um, sort of um, uh, image of things and uh, and his sidekick 
um, uh, you know, pr you know, promoting the idea that human beings are really just we've we've just one polarity, like we're 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 biological units, and that we don't have a spiritual nature or soul. Uh, that to me is a kind of a godless uh, way of thinking. That's also very damaging, and and it's also that it's also to me an absolute symbol of the fight we're all in. And that's a fight really between um, those that cherish individual thought, freedom and individuality and those that just want to treat us as um, biological units that will feed into this great singularity that they keep talking about and that we'll go off and we, we'll actually become gods ourselves, you know, which uh, which really is um, quite a dangerous way of thinking. But I mean, that is definitely going to happen. And I think that's the great social struggle of the next generation, the battle between um, individual freedoms and the and, and this this instinct that's going on, this impulse that's going on for control uh, and power um, using technology. Um, and, and I think it's going to could that that could generate into something quite serious like uh, in other words it's not just going to be an intellectual uh, confrontation i think it's going to be a bit a bit a bit more serious than that the way it's going at the moment so um then just back to the financial side so we're at the end of this 50 year economic cycle started in the 71 you all know the story break from the gold standard yeah the, the uh, uh, if you look at interest rates on bonds they they kept falling and falling and falling uh, over the period and the reason they kept falling was because the debt kept getting bigger and the only way you could service the debt was by making sure the interest rates kept getting smaller and then we come to you know the Lehman moment in September 2008 that goes burst and then of course uh, now we get into zero interest rates in fact there's no interest rate at all for for those at the institutional level so they could make squillions which is why over the period um, you know capital grew about six to seven fold and, and workers wages only grew about 40 45 percent over the period so there's a massive transfer of wealth so there's no wonder the global elite the corpus the bill gates of this world and so on schwab and all all of the people that hang around together it's no wonder that they they, they believe they're the masters of the universe as if they're some kind of geniuses they're not they're not they're not what they did was they were in the right place at the right time when the world chose to uh, go to zero interest rates and give capital away for nothing. So those that were closest to the trough, all they had to do was take the money and put it anywhere. And the rising tide was lifting all ships. And um, uh, so we're now at the end of that. And the, the very end of that really was uh, the great uh, splurge of more money printing uh, around the pandemic in inverted commas. I put the pandemic in inverted commas and, you know, I want to go down into, you know, how, how all that came together and who was responsible, because I actually think it's rather ac academic at this point. We're beyond it. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be facing the facts as they emerge and promoting them and all the rest. So people understand just how just how how much um, the world went into a kind of a mass psychosis. I mean, that that's terribly important because it could happen again, but on a different set of issues. That's that's the real issue. So where we are now after that is that was going to create inflation. There was no doubt about it. I, I was so convinced I couldn't get the information through to mainstream media. It was closed. They weren't interested in Mavericks. Uh, I got a few couple of pieces into the Irish Examiner early in the pandemic, and I got closed down after that because it was clearly taking on the uh, the narrative that uh, that was verboten. I, I was so co convinced that this was going to end in an inflationary era uh, that uh, that I put ads on uh, news talk, national ads, saying this is going to end in inflation. There was no inflation, by the way, in 2020. It just wasn't there. Saying this is going to end in an inflationary era. It wasn't original thinking because in 2017 I'd written a book about called the Pivot 
which was, you know, the, the world was drowning in debt and how was it going to pivot and what did you have to do to prepare? And the front cover of that showed the US national debt in $100 bills surrounding the Statue of Liberty. So it's quite a dramatic image. At the time, the US national debt was 20 trillion. It's now 30 trillion. So uh, so it's it's gone up quite considerably, uh, even in, it's since 2017. So this huge wall of money came in, and uh, this time it didn't just go into uh, kind of institutional money supply and end back up in the central bank and get cancelled. It went down into the actual veins of the economy through into M M2 and M3, which is really down into consumer level. And then suddenly we were being told, oh, well, well, it won't be inflationary. Don't worry about it. And if, sure, if there's a bit of inflation, sure, sure, it'll be transitory. And that lie and it was a lie that was spun throughout 2021 and 2000 and coming into you know the new the new year's eve of uh, the, over the new year in 2022 the fed decided the game's up here we can't maintain this bullshit about transitory anymore it's quite obvious with inflation of six seven eight nine percent emerging this is a problem and it was becoming embedded then because it was getting into the housing sector and it was getting into wage demands. And that means you've got a momentum problem with inflation. So the Fed said, OK, we better start. We're going to start hiking this year, guys, just to let you know. And then there was a, you know, a few gentle hikes to get get everything going. And then core inflation didn't change in the United States. And then they panicked. And that panic was in September. Uh, it was just just after happening where the where the Fed basically came out and said, we don't care whatever pain it takes. We're going to have we're going to start hiking until inflation is 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 defeated, and uh, and that's that was a huge change. So in the last number of weeks, U.S. ten-year yields have gone up from you know two point seven to three point seven, three point eight, three point nine percent. That might not sound like much, but that's a huge increase in uh, in borrowing costs. So American mortgages over thirty years have gone from three percent before all this happened to like uh, you know this year to I started this year to seven percent. I mean consider the impact on the housing sector alone. Now there is a lag effect between hiking rates and uh, and the impacts and uh, and and the, the the sort of some of the impacts on the housing and on labor. But we won't know that for a few months. So uh, now we have the midterm elections and that might delay things slightly for political reasons but the impact of hiking rates is absolutely astonishing if you look at it i mean the uh, the, the, the sterling nearly went into the toilet on monday it fell four percent in one day and the bank of england had to intervene with a statement i mean this is happening folks like it was a 20 23 percent drop in sterling sterling started off the year at 135 i think to the uh, to the dollar and then it was nearly parity on monday you know just a few days after the uh, queen queen elizabeth was buried so it looks as if the currency was going to be buried with her. And uh, I mean, the euro has fallen dramatically against the dollar, now largely to do, of course, with energy and so on. Uh, it's a softer euro is probably no harm to try and improve exports. But um, but when it's a significant fall and a huge increase in the cost of borrowing, of getting energy in international markets, which is traded in the dollar since Kissinger did the deal in 1974 on the petrodollar with the uh, with the Saudis all that's changing I'll come back to that in a moment so so where we are right now is that um you know there's a the, the, the dollar is like a great because it's the world reserve currency uh, it's like a great black hole that's sucking in enormous amounts of capital from all over the world but funnily enough it's creating a dollar liquidity 
crisis and there's not enough dollars out there so so we have this very strange thing happening where people are holding on to their dollars they're holding on to their treasuries they're not rolling them over because they know this hiking they know this hiking is temporary it's going to go up and then it's going to have to come back down again because you cannot raise u.s interest rates to you know to four and a half or five percent and keep them up there without actually breaking the economy it's just not just not going to happen uh, and that's because of the scale of the debt not because of the the number three three four and a half to five percent, but the scale of the debt is so excessive. I mean, going into this, one in every five U.S. companies on the S and P five hundred was a zombie, which means that it, they, you know they couldn't support their own businesses if interest rates just went up one or two percent. I mean, we're talking about interest rates have gone up three or four fold since the start of the year. So this is becoming a very very serious problem. Uh, we're seeing property markets fall over because leveraging is leveraging is after flood going flying up so people can only can can bid far less for properties so properties are coming down to meet them you're seeing property property you know property prices or property sectors that were really existing on credit bubbles beginning to pop new zealand is one to watch uh, sydney uh, melbourne uh, you know san francisco vancouver and and so on so the Irish property market, by the way, is not supported by credit bubble because the central bank had its foot on the throat of, of loan underwriting. Otherwise, Irish property prices would be 30 percent higher, at least that today than they actually are. And we would be going burst again. We'd be going burst for the second time. Uh, but that's not that's not happening. Our debt to GDP is uh, is half of what it was in 2008. And our consumer uh, overall consumer borrowing is actually about half of what it was in 2008 in relative terms as well. So uh, but that doesn't mean we couldn't get badly affected by an external shock. I mean, quite clearly we could and we are. So um, uh, so so where we are then in, in, in terms of um, this period, uh, the world really is is now going to go through a great clean out. Uh, some people call this the Great Reset, and you know people can have different definitions of what it is, but it's definitely going to be the Great Cleanout. Let's call it that. And the Great Cleanout is going to get rid of an awful lot of businesses that shouldn't have got be got rid of because energy costs are going to mean they're going to close down, they're going to go out of business. Uh, but it's also getting rid of a lot of businesses that existed because of a misallocation of capital over 15 years and uh, at, at cheap prices. That that's that they're definitely going to fall over. So we're going to see a lot of names being taken over, um, you know, sudden acquisitions over weekends, that kind of thing. We're going to see banks fail. I have no doubt about that. Um, why that will happen? Well, I mean, if you look at the global bond market, the global bond market total value uh, up until about July this year was around 70 trillion. And now it's around 50, 58 trillion. So there's been a 12 trillion euro fall in the value of bonds, which is which is very significant. And um, when you consider that bonds are the reserve asset on bank balance sheets, obviously their assets are falling away. Uh, and that that's an issue for certain banks that have already been showing signs of distress coming into this. Uh, so I watch banks, for example, like Credit Suisse, the big the big Swiss bank, that's uh, its share price has gone down 80% since 2018. And this year it's fallen, uh, it's fallen again quite significantly. So definitely, all you need is a cup, is a cup, is one big one or a number of them just to to go into default, and then you've got another bank crisis in Europe. Although this time we do have the infrastructure to deal with it, uh, doesn't mean that there isn't going to be uh, bank failures and, uh, and 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 haircuts, especially in banks that are not deemed to be of systemic importance in their in their in their country or in their region. I think that's inevitable. 
um, not just because of um, uh, the, the bond the bond issue, but also because of the the huge amount the huge increase in distressed debt uh, as a consequence of 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 lockdown, which you know lockdown didn't have any science behind it uh, at all, no track record. We just decided to do it because the Chinese did it, and let's follow them, and it wasn't wasn't going to be great, and. Professor Ferguson, you know, in in London, was scaring the shit out of everybody in March 2020 about otherwise millions and millions of people were going to die. It was all nonsense. So uh, anyway, we did that. That's behind us, and uh, and we were we we've been left with this legacy. So I think the next number of years, at the start of a long economic cycle that could go on for decades, but certainly the start of it, uh, it will be the birth pangs of it. And uh, and you're going to have this great clean out. So I see us going through re- revolving uh, stagflation and recession uh, for the next number of years. So let me just spell that out. Stagflation is where, uh, you know, you've got um, you've got inflation running higher than economic growth. So you're going like two steps forward and three steps back. Stagflation has has a nasty impact um, when it's prolonged, where you know discretionary spending gets squeezed because people are finding that their wages are going more towards compulsory spending, energy, food, shelter, and not a lot left over for discretionary spending, and therefore you start getting recessionary effects, and suddenly you've got a recession, and then inflation disappears. And everybody says it's magic. Inflation is gone. Isn't it wonderful? But it's gone because of recession. Recession has got rid of it. That's what the Fed is hoping for. By the way, they're they're trying to generate a recession, and uh, they're just saying, but it'll be it'll be a Goldilocks recession, not too hot, not too cold, just about enough to satisfy us that inflation is being defeated. But inflation won't be defeated just from the action of the Fed over the next uh, year. It just won't. Like it's it, there's just too much debt after being there's too much money out there. It's going to take a, a long period of time. So I think inflation will come and go just as it did in the 70s for quite a period of time. And I think that's actually the deliberate policy um, that is going to be followed because it's the only way out of the problem. Otherwise, you know, currencies will simply would simply incinerate from hyperinflation or they would um, or we would have a deflationary um, major deflation and depression. So I think that's that's the route. That's the that's the March route for central banks. They don't really know whether this is going to work or not, but this is a great gamble, and they they call it the soft landing. You know, it's it's possible, but people say to me, "Well, will it, will will it happen?" I say, "Well, picture yourself in the cockpit um, of the space shuttle at night, out of uh, lights, f- trying to land, glide into." You're you're trying to land this flying brick, basically the space shuttle into Kerry Airport, right at night, uh, and without without power. Yes, it's possible. Yes, it can be done. It it has been done. It's noted to be done in Hollywood movies, uh, but this is reality. But that's 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 the that's to me is the soft landing. So I think we're going to get a very bumpy landing, and it's going to go on for several years while while this next economic cycle starts. And there's a, there you know there's a lot of positive stuff on the other side of that if we set ourselves up properly. How how can the average Joe and Jane um, protect themselves in this? Well, just on the more, on the more practical stuff, I think that it's important uh, to have a reserve food supply because of potential disruption to the food chain. I don't think that may happen this winter, but I certainly think that winter 2023, which is far more risky than winter, than this current winter. And just off the phone, just just before we started this meeting to a friend of mine who's in uh, who's who's in Germany, in Dusseldorf, 
uh, he's he's well embedded into it. He's he goes over there as a as a management consultant, right in the middle, right at the heart of German industry. And uh, they're not they on the ground, despite the media, they're not that concerned about blackouts of um of, of in German industry just yet. Um, there there's obviously a risk, but like the problem is the uh, is the building up the reserves for twenty twenty three rather than rather than this year, you know. So, uh, so there's time to do that. I think I, I'd certainly be looking at that, and I'd be looking at, you know, uh, being able to black start your own electricity supply where you can, even if it's a small generator, just to keep you going. Insulation, uh, you know, warm clothing, all that kind of basic preparatory stuff. Anybody can be doing that, um, unless they're absolutely skint. You know, uh, most of us could be doing that kind of thing. You know, without a fuss, without a fanfare, and without scaring the shit out of the neighbours. Then, in terms then of the financial stuff, absolutely rule number one is you must own physical stored gold, not a derivative of gold, not a contract or a piece of paper, physical stored gold. And by the way, not at home because that's a security risk. But actually, you can you can own gold ounce bars, you can own kilo bars, you can have them stored ideally outside of the EU. And my preference would be in Zurich. People say, "Oh, but your gold is expensive." I say, "But Jesus, like, gold is an insurance. It's 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 an alternative currency to the one that you're using. The money printing this time round is vastly in excess of the last time round. So the gold price has a, has the potential to go extremely high. But if it does happen to go extremely high, you can be absolutely rest assured that the rest of your assets are going catastrophically in the opposite direction, especially your your fiat currency." So therefore, to me, gold isn't a question of, I should, well, maybe I should have some gold. You have to have physical gold if you're taking this, this, this serious. Now, we're in the fortunate position this year that gold price is down around 11% year to date. And that's because interest rates are now, you know, long-term 10-year rates in the US are running at around nearly 4%. So capital is flowing into, into the US dollar and gold prices come down and it might even come down a little bit further. So it's, it's actually a very good time if you're, if you're, if you're keen on this to, to get into the, in, in, and get, get, translate some of your liquid cash into gold. And I've done this myself. Uh, have it as, it's the largest part of the reserves of my own company has been for years. But when you do this, it's actually mentally very good for you because you say to yourself, when you open up the newspaper headline and everybody is beginning to, to, you know, to get scared by it, you're saying, well, at least I have the gold. You know, my gold is rising, you know, when it usually is at times of great stress, you know. So I think that's very important. If you've got um, a lot of debt, Let's just deal with mortgage debt. I've been saying this for the last few years uh, to people. Look, get in before the long term fixed rates start to get out of control. Now, that's been happening. So try and get into a long term fixed rate mortgage. They were as cheap as 2.2% fixed over 20 years uh, with one of the providers on the market. So um, people just didn't want to give up their tracker mortgages, you know, uh, ever since listening to the ad on the bus, you know, what's a tracker mortgage? from the Central Bank of Ireland. Uh, but it's now changed around. Interest rates are rising and they could rise an awful lot further. So if you can get into a long-term fixed rate, which is less than in the inflation rate, you're in the nirvana financial planning where you're screwing the bank rather than the other way around. So that means that every month the actual cost, provided your wages are going up at the rate of inflation, um, you know, every every month your the cost of service into this is falling and the balance is falling as well. So uh, this this is what happened in the 70s to a lot of Irish people. They bought houses in Cork and Limerick and Galway for, you know, the early 1970 for, say, two and a half grand, maybe four grand in Dublin. And uh, and they were clearing their mortgages um, 10 years later. 
uh, with their next paycheck. I mean, so there's a big switch in power from 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 creditors uh, to 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 debtors during an inflation era. Now, I don't think inflation is going to just go hyperinflation. I don't think that they've, that's going to happen at this stage anyway. But we're definitely going to see an increase in the long-term average inflation. I think it's going to go from maybe 1.5% to 2%, depending on whether you're looking on Europe or America, to somewhere to somewhere between 3 and 4% as the long-term average. But remember, that long-term average can mask huge spikes that can occur from time to time. And then you get recessionary effects again, you know, the stagflation, recession, sort of Lanigan's ball effect, the in and out revolving door. I mean, that's a major increase in, uh, in, in long-term forecasted inflation. The market is pricing long-term inflation at around 2.8%. Uh, I think it's going to be higher than that. I think it's going to be sticky at between 3 and 4 and um, And that means that... Um, if you can if you can get long term fixed rates at uh, less than that uh, you could be positioning yourself into the nirvana financial planning so so it's so something you can do with debt obviously uh, the power shifts to to debtors at, at a high inflation cycle but only provided you can you can manage the debt and um, but if you can and inflation starts to take root for the next 10 to 20 years then whatever excess credit you've got now will be will be a lot lower in real money terms. And remember, you're playing the exact same bank as the central banks are playing because this is exactly what they want to achieve. They want the real value of all the outstanding debt to to decline uh, relative to the economic value uh, that will exist in t- 10 or 20 years' time. So I think they're in that pl- plan for the long haul. Now, they're not going to publish that as a fact otherwise. You know, people are going to be lending money to national governments if they think they're going to get screwed. But that's that. That's what happened after the end of the First World War, and certainly at the end of the Second World War, the inflation hit twenty uh, percent in the US in nineteen forty-seven. So I would say that gold debt management um, carefully done. Property is an important asset to hold during a high inflation cycle. It does better in a low inflation cycle, but during a high inflation cycle, what tends to happen is that landlords increase rents. Uh, when wage uh, demands, uh, when labour power grows, unions grow in strength. Um, they demand more from employers. They eventually get it. The employers increase costs. That creates more inflation, and you get a wage inflation spiral. But but landlords tend to increase uh, rents when they see wages rising, so they get a share of it. So the multiple that the market pays for property doesn't really change very much. Now there's one small problem in all of that, and that's um, Ireland has moved to the left. Rent pressure zones. Uh, tenant rights and so on, and it's going to move even further if we get when we get a Sinn Féin-led government, uh, and you get the ideological attack on, um, on 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 property ownership, which I think is inevitable. You know that's one thing you just have to be careful of. That's 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 why a lot of um, a lot of private property, you know, landlords are leaving the market. It's one of the contributory factors to the to the absolute muck we're in um, from from poor planning. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, are we in a situation where we could get just the great reset, where everything is reset to zero, the dollar collapses, the US bond market falls apart, um, and, you know, nobody's anything anymore except for the ultra wealthy. Um, you know, that that just makes no sense to me uh, for a number of reasons. Well, firstly, if you look at, at what's going on, there's a major challenge uh, growing uh, to US dominance with its reserve currency status. It's It's basically the BRICS. Led by Russia, uh, China, India, um, Brazil, uh, South Africa, to be joined by Saudi Arabia, which just signed last year a military agreement with Russia, very similar to what Kissinger did back in '73. Iran is the was the only place that Putin has been uh, until very recently outside of Russia since the invasion of Kuwait. 
uh, in Iran is joining and um, and Saudi Arabia and I think in time Nigeria. So like this represents roughly about, you know, when you when you look at the regions they're involved in about 75 percent of the world population and their plan is they, they want to put together um, a twin track um, gold and commodity backed currency platform. And they're all large commodity producing countries and then start trading on it instead of true U.S. dollar. And uh, like if that were successful, now that's like trying to herd a bag of cats as well, because there's a lot of different countries there with different agendas. But if that's successful, that's a big, a big significant challenge this century to uh, to U.S. Um, dollar, petrodollar dominance. So that's happening. That's far more of an important initiative to me than private cryptocurrency. I know there's a lot of advocates of private crypto. Um, I think that, you know, that this was going to be the the replacement for the US dollar and, 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 and you know, and they were going to be work, they were going to be squillionaires and uh, retire, you know, at, um, <clears throat> retire with the, with their just, just out of their acne period, 19 or 20 years of age as, as, as geniuses. None of that is happening. Um, if you want to know why it's scalability, the Bank for International Settlements, and I'm no fan of them, um, uh, did a recent report on the scalability of private crypto and, of course, came to the conclusion that this was a great idea, but really the central banks themselves should do it because they can scale it and and have been promoting central bank digital currency. So the question then is, will central bank digital currency come into Western liberal democracy and will will will, will currencies be programmed by unelected officials in central banks? Um, over, over and above, above the voices of 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 democracy, and the answer to that, I think, is very straightforward. I mean, if you try to implement a digital dollar in the United States, uh, they have three hundred and fifty million weapons. Most of them are in the in the hands of ninety million Republicans. A lot of them are nuts, uh, and they're very, very libertarian uh, in their in their outlook. And uh, I certainly wouldn't like to be um, a member of of a kind of a left of center Washington based elite that would suggest you you know hand in your uh, your your paper dollars and worth anything anymore. You need one of these programmable um, digital dollars from us, and uh, we're we're going to tell you what to do for the rest of your life. I mean, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't like to be driving home from uh, from the Fed, uh, uh, you know, having having given that um, uh, sort of line out. I really think that this thing is going to have to go through democratic chambers and that's where the clash is going to come between us and them. And that's where the fight is going to be, uh, because it's definitely going to be attempted. Um, and um, could it, but having said that, if the if digital currencies were to come in and they were properly controlled and there was privacy protection and they could not be abused uh, for on reasons of law that would be stitched into constitutions and all of the other things that law can actually do, then they, they may not be a bad thing. Um, but 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 certainly in the hands of the of the wrong type of leadership, as you can see in China, uh, this is this is this is a horrendous uh, uh, technology uh, in, in the wrong hands, you know, with the 200 million cameras and facial recognition and, uh, you know, fines coming out of your account and your your, your trans, transport being taken off you and whatever the hell, just for saying something unpleasant about the, uh, We've about seen the it already there. We've seen it already in the West with uh, Trudeau and the, and the truckers' yeah. protest. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. like, it's not, all, it's, it's, it's not like it's beyond them doing these type of things. 100% sure that's what yeah. they will use it for if they get a chance. Yes, they will. They will. And, um, uh, you know, the in, in fairness to the um, I mean, I remember when the trucker thing started over on the other side of Canada. I remember, you know, shouting about it on Twitter, trying to get people to support them. It was terribly important. And the vilification of them and the demonization of them. We had that in Ireland, except they weren't truckers. They were just people just saying, I'm not vaccinated. 
I'm vaccinated, by the way, but I mean, I could see this coming. That's why I made that comment about, well, why don't we just give them yellow armbands altogether, you know? And uh, and the vilification that uh, that people were subject to uh, by lead, so-called leading lights of, of mainstream media was, was absolutely horrific. Um, but, but it was nothing compared to what happened in other countries. What happened in Canada was shocking. And um, But I couldn't see that happening. It's out of the border in the United States. They take it far more seriously there, you know. They, they, they open fire. We're in the European Union. So anything that happens along those lines would have to be accepted by the populations of the European Union. And we're already beginning to see developments which suggest that that's not going to happen, led by, led by those changes uh, over the weekend in Italy. That's not going to happen. They, they won't put up with it. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction just at the wrong time. The problem with left of centre thinking, um, whatever about your particular view of economics, is that the, the left of centre mindset believes in the big state. It believes that power should be centralised. And it turns a blind eye when the big state actually infringes on civil rights. You know, which is why we've had we had utter silence from that part of the Irish um, uh, social sphere when the when the shit was on their own doorstep, which was the which was the pandemic and everything that w- went around it, you know. And um, unfortunately, Ireland has been quite docile. You know, we've what is it, 19,000 members of the uh, registered under the Medical Council, only a handful of them stood up just just the way we are at the moment. And, uh, you know, that will change. Um, but I think the change is going to come into Ireland from the outside. I think it's going to change in Europe first. People are just going to put up with it. That's that's the bottom line. That's a good bit of positivity there. The good point you made about the election there in Italy and the USA, the division over there and what's been stirred. You know, it's just it's, it's nearly unbelievable. We had Biden's speech there with the with the red background and the, he's calling out the other side. Yeah, I, it's like they're trying to to weaken it maybe maybe for the reasons you've said is that it seems to me that they want to try and take america down or to divide and rule or something well i mean people have ideologies and um they, they, once they start um when people stop debating um even alternative views public debating there's nothing wrong with it um but once the engagement stops then there's then there's no compromise and uh, and then you get and then the, the both polar both poles get taken over by the extremists and i mean but it, Trump is Trump is the wrong leader, really. You know, psychologically, his makeup he's utterly wrong for for what's required uh, on that side of it. You know, unfortunately, um, he he comes with so much baggage, and I say that like I mean I, I you know I mean I express my feelings here, but I mean I I, I went down to um, Ocean Studios in West Cork at the uh, in I think it was two thousand and seventeen. anyway, back a few years, you know, he was a year you know less than a year into his first into his term. Uh, to, uh, to 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 re- to redo the Langer song, as a tribute to to Trump, um, uh, just horrific because he's an economic nationalist, um, and he believes in a win lose relationship. That's the big problem with him, not not in the win win. He believes in win lose, and and anything less than win lose is is uh, is not acceptable to him, and uh, and he'll he'll do anything to to win anything, including lying. Uh, through his through his teeth, so like that's not uh, that's not the type of leader you need. Um, but you know, I'm being positive about it. I think that uh, that at, at in hard, hard times produce um, strong leaders, and as we enter these hard times, these leaders will emerge because because that's the human population just produces them, um, because they have to respond to harder times. And uh, soft times produce poor leaders. And uh, that's what we're seeing. I mean, we just have to look across into London. Liz Truss, God help us, um, hasn't a clue what she's doing. 
And um, you can see that on Monday. The attack uh, on Stirling on Monday was a direct assault on the crazy uh, strategy, which is cutting taxes financed by massive increase in, in public debt. I mean, it's it's a huge gamble. I wanted to ask you something, yeah. Eddie, on, on um, this idea of uh, stakeholder capitalism. This new system, it looks like they want to bring in. Do, do you know much about that? What, what's your definition? Well, I, I have a different view. I think that um, neoliberalism has created this. Um, it's it's fueled the whole Keynesian economics, um, which drove the uh, what we've been for the last fifteen years. When I wrote the pivot in two thousand and seventeen, the very last sentence said that, in my view, that the the most dangerous doctrine brought forward from the twenty first century from the from the last century uh, was 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 Keynesian economics. That this was going to prove to be the case. No, that may or may not happen, but we're certainly on that on that trajectory at the moment. So uh, on the other side, the actual yin and yang response is, well, now what we need is socialism. So like the big state, borrow high, tax high, uh, keep going, just lash the money at it. And, uh, and, and we're all in this together. You know, we'll all be equally as miserable together. Right? I don't believe that's worthwhile either. Uh, I mentioned that on the Clare Burns right about a minute, and I I used the cows example, and um, it drove the um, it drove the left absolutely bananas because they just simply said, you know, with socialist taxation, you have two cows, and the government take one off you and give it to your most idle neighbour, um, and that didn't go down too well. I was criticised. You don't understand uh, the difference between socialism and communism. And I I said I do. Doing in communism, they take both cows off you, and you've none. And uh, and with fascism, um, they they take both cows off you and shoot you. So they're both extremes. I think that technology and and will and the will to change uh, could produce different outcomes. For example, if you look at the running of a country, why do we have just a budget once a year? Why don't we have revolving budgets constantly under review by cross-party groups uh, instead of this big pan- pantomime every year with the leaks and the media making a feast of it and all the nonsense that goes on. I mean, went on today, I didn't even read it. Because I know that the actual inflation has taken away whatever they're trying to give back in the budget. You know, and, and then that'll create more inflation, which will even take more away. So it's, you know, so the net, you know, the net in and net out situation is negative for, for everybody. But we venerate a GDP. Uh, we've allowed trickle-down economics, which haven't trickled down. If it wasn't for the distributive nature of the Irish taxation system, we would have one of the most unequal um, uh, income pyramids, let's call it that, in Europe. But we have a, we have a fantastically distributive uh, tax system. Uh, I would say probably probably a bit extreme, but it's doing the job that it was intended to do. But the great problem we've got is that we have no intention whatsoever of reforming how we actually go and spend money. We have, uh, you know, the, the three words I always use are National Children's Hospital. Like, we, we just are miserable at actually using the money well. And that's a problem then for taxpayers to hand over large dollops of money into, into the exchequer because they know, it's, they know it's going to be wasted. You know, they know that there's no, they know there's no accountability. That, uh, that, you know, that promotion is on the basis of time served and not on the basis of innovation and, uh, and reformation. In point of fact, you won't last very long if you start talking that language. We all know people inside that actually don't work. They just turn up for work. Lots, lots on the administrative side, not at the front end, on the administrative side. And 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 it's it's been it's been allowed to go on like that. We have premium rates of pay uh, over and above the private sector. So when we do get downturns, it's always the indigenous private economy gets it in the neck. And we have a media talk about 
what I call the GTNs, guard the nurses and teachers. Oh, what about the GTNs? Well, the GTNs have jobs for life, you know, and uh, nobody talks about the, the, the low-paid worker behind, the, co- behind the, the counter in super value, frightened out of her life during the pandemic period and turning up to serve people every day or the low-paid workers in the restaurants and the hotels. It's the GTNs all the time. Like, it's, it's absolutely arseways, you know, with this kind of apartheid system of pay we've got and which we've put up with and we just continue to let it happen but let me just finish the point the whole idea of economic growth is that it should it should create an improvement in social progress and how do we measure social progress we have pissing competitions on national uh, uh, in national media yin and yang between opposing political ideologies and they just shout at each other and it's balance everybody's happy that was a good debate wasn't there was no debate at all it's just pissing competitions between opposing sides there is no scientific measurement in ireland of any social progress at all that's done independently so we don't measure scientifically measure improvements or disimprovements across the health system uh, across justice uh, home care uh, child care. Uh, their surveys done, their media do them, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a CSO, Central Statistics Office, scientific group whose job it is, is to measure the interface between Irish citizens and the state using three different types of measures which come together. One is surveys on the spot. How did you get on? Score is here, score is there. Done on your mobile phone, done on pieces of paper if necessary, done and collated and straight away put through to the centre, along with hard data, mortality, life expectancies, all of that kind of hard data stuff, uh, you know, trolleys, etc. And uh, and then uh, and then most importantly, uh, using AI to collate all of the data from the, from so, from the social networks, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, negative, positive comments, and bring it all together in one centralized index, which actually measures just as GDP measures our economic values, social pro- progress indices measure our social values whether they're improving or disimproving and where are they improving and where are they disimproving. And then now we can say, well, we've had a 5% increase in GDP, but our social progress has only increased by two. We've just made a bollocks of it. If we have a 5% increase in GDP and our social progress has gone up 7 or 8%, we should be celebrating it. Not only that, but the actual rates of pay and bonuses and incentives for those people that have driven that performance in the public sector should, 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 should increase. So that so that groups of people and teams of people are being incentivized to create greater social progress for the citizens of this country. And that creates greater solidarity because everybody can see what's being measured. It also removes the pissing contest. That's the problem. They don't want that to go away. Um, It actually replaces it with science. So instead of having squabbling politicians, uh, you know, filling up airspace, we actually have data scientists reporting to us on what the actual data is and then they can fight over the data but at least we have the data not some interpretation or some opinion on the basis of somebody's just given a powerful speech let's all get behind that because jay-z your man was very good on the late late christ we should make him t-shirt you know and then when we want to give out then what do we do we ring joe duffy and we have a good whinge and it is i tell you we can sort that problem out you know but nobody's looking at the data so that's all there. It's actually the opening um, it's opening policy in the programme for government. 
uh, from a paper that was produced by Professor Cal Muckley of UCD just in February 2020, just at the opening of the pandemic. It's all outlined how coach could be done. It's in with the Department of Finance now, but the Department of Finance are working are working diligently to make sure it doesn't happen. So at the launch of that paper, because I was involved in sponsoring it, um, uh, even not writing it, but sponsoring it, organising it, um, a senior official turn up from the Department of Finance. They were all invited and they turned up just to tell me, by the way, we don't we don't need external people like data scientists, um, you know, measuring the outcome at all. Sure, should we do that ourselves? I'm saying, well, you know, that's the fucking problem, isn't it? You're doing it yourselves. You're measuring your own performance. Sure, of course, you're all going to be fantastic, just like the, the grade increases go through, you know. Everybody's brilliant. We have the best we have the best civil service in the world when it comes to performance, you know, like they're, they're super duper, super duper. Nobody's measuring it independently. So, like, I'm saying, well, what, we, we put up with this, you know. So to me, um, uh, moving forward, but kind of some kind of swing to the left of centre is probably the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, I think that um, taxation should be set at the, at the optimum level along the Laffer curve, which is the optimum level of wherever you are in the economic cycle, you set your taxes to fit the optimum level so that you're just at the sweet spot where if you increase taxes, you you, you reduce revenues. And um, um, in other words, this is the optimum level so that when you get economic growth and you're in a boom period, that's the time to increase taxes. But when you get downturns, that's the time to reduce taxes. To, to put more people in people's money in people's pockets and get the, and get the whole engine going again and that that can all be done but it cannot be done if you're doing budget once a year it can only be done if it's a rolling uh, system with feedback on the impacts of social progress uh, coming through in rapid style to policymakers and and they're sitting around in their committees with the scientists giving them the answers they require uh, on what needs to be done and not some ideological battle about where does the capital come from to organise the social housing. You know, the question is, is it, where is the bloody social housing? Not where does the capital come from? You know, it's a very similar kind of what you're suggesting. It's very similar to the central bank digital currencies. Like, you know, this trickle down effect where, where, where with the, with these digital currencies, they can literally manipulate the economy in real time. Like, they can maybe put a percentage that so much of your income can only be spent in a certain business or it can be used. You know, this kind of thing where they can actually... Yeah, but that's a fight. Yeah, that's a fight that has to be won. You cannot have a situation where where, where any Politburo controls how, how, how one is going to spend one's currency, whether it's digital or physical. You cannot have that because you, you are... Like, what's the point in having a democracy if you're handing over... The power to control your your movements, your spending, your relationships, uh, it, it, that makes no sense to me at all on any level, no matter what the economic gain is. It makes no sense and has to be resisted. And, and if necessary, it has to be physically fought against. We cannot allow that to happen in Europe and in Ireland, and it needs to be talked about. But at the moment, it's not being talked about because we have this cancel culture, don't rock the boat mentality it's like we're in a stupor after after the pandemic uh, and nobody's talking about it. And I mean, now when I say nobody, I mean, the editors of of of, of mainstream media, are, they're not interested in rocking the boat. They feel you know, like they've all been captured somehow or like they do well, feel yeah, like they've captured. all been captured. Unbelievably well, so. 
Well, I mean, the RT made its uh, its first its first profit for generations during the pandemic year. So the state was spending squillions on tele- and scaring the shit out of everybody through the national newspapers and all the ads. So it's quite clear that the, the you know journalism walked out the door. You know, I mean, people's salaries, people's mortgages uh, were being paid by the state. You know, uh, lots of people have never come back to work, and not some people will never work again. Like mentally like it's switched off there's about 10 million missing in the labor force in the united states they know where they're gone they're not they're not unemployed and they're they're not working they're the uh they're the uh they're, they're sort of like kind of there but they're not there the more this is discussed um you know the more people engage especially at grassroots level because it's not happening in mainstream media but more engage on social media more people are waking up i think if you look at the the numbers that Professor Matthias or Matthias Desmet has given on on mass psychosis, he suggests that around twenty twenty five percent, when when you get these events occur, of the population can see through it and see it for what it is, and are prepared to say so. Some of them, quite a few of them, that that another twenty five or thirty percent are basically love it. They love the whole idea of the big state and they have something to do, and it gives them a sense of. A direction in life they didn't have before, you know. They're the they're the SS, the Waffen SS of the of the whole thing. And then you have the forty percent in the middle that know it's wrong, see it's wrong, but but don't want to rock the boat because they've got members in the public sector. They're compromised. Their income is coming from you know through this through state apparatuses, and they just you know they'll happily kind of like wink and nod to the uh, people at the barricades. But actually, uh, when the push comes to the shove. They'll be they'll be they'll be they'll be throwing battles at them if it if it suited them you know, so um that's 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 just the way we are and uh, but for me the whole purpose of these engagements was never to convince the uh, the twenty twenty five percent of the um the, the let's call them the equivalent of the the SS uh, you know the totally and utterly messianic when it comes to their attitude towards whatever the state is saying, uh, they're beyond facts so you just don't engage with them there's no point. The only thing you can ever do with those type of people is to just give them something, something even more fearful to fear, you know, transplant their substitution of that fear with even a bigger fear. Uh, but like really, you have to try and convince the 40 percent in the middle in your family, in your in your wider group, in your peer group, you know, pick them off one by one and get them to open their get their critical faculties moving again. Let them figure it out for themselves. I mean, I'm often on Twitter and I say to people, oh, I, they say, well, where, show me this and show me that. I said, I'm not your research. Go and figure it out yourself. Because if people figure it out for themselves and go and find the information for themselves, they'll believe it. Whereas if you give it to them on a plate, as far as they're, they won't believe it at all. You know, <laughs> that's, that's just human nature. So go and, figure, go and find it for yourself. But they're there. The facts are there. Um, and um, um, but the problem, the great problem, as you know, is that people were people were so so embedded in the whole thing that they find it very hard now to accept that they uh, that despite all of their training and the and the and the and the squillions mummy and daddy put into their education in whatever universities and private colleges they went to, that actually they were taken in by the whole thing that they stopped using their critical thinking faculty and just assumed. Uh, that that everybody else, uh, like you know, on the side of the house that was questioning it, were conspiracy theory, tinfoil hats, nutcases looking for tension, and and all that kind of garbage. They they yeah. they throw at us, you know. It's it's very hard here in Ireland because at least I said this a few times, but in the UK to have some kind of an alternative view, that have maybe conservative media that would you know they were against mask and or against lockdown, some kind yeah. of an alternative view. In Ireland, did we didn't have that? 
you just had the state, like something with the Chinese, yeah, the, the state-sponsored narrative and all of the media singing off the same hymn sheet. I don't think we had any Irish like pundits from any of the, like RTE or anywhere like that, that ever came out and said, you know, have you seen this great Barrington uh, declaration? Have you, um, you know, or questioned anything, basically? No, there was no... Superficially, nothing, nothing here. There was no question at all. I, I sometimes sell the, my little involvement in that just to, just to... At the very start of all of that, it was quite clear to me that the um, that there was a triangle going on between RT and the Irish Times and the civil service. So the civil service would brief, uh, they would leak something to journalists in the Irish Times. He was There was no journalism involved, just cut and paste. And you can put it as a speculative comment on the front page of the newspaper the next day on what the government was intending to do that afternoon at seven o'clock, whatever it was going to be. And then the RT would say, well, it says in the newspapers and they'd run with that story and that would set the news agenda for the day. News talk walked off the pitch because Dennis O'Brien was selling it and uh, was was going to need the okay from a government minister within the following 12 months. So they were going off the pitch. The, uh, the, 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 the mainstream media, the Irish Independent, is subject to a high court inspection by the state. Still ongoing. So they're going to they're gonna be behaving themselves. Uh, plus the fact that they, um, you know, that everybody was looking at the amount of lolly that was going to come in on the on, on advertising, the Irish Times. Well, the Irish Times were the, the establishment newspaper. You know, they were going to get the leaks, uh, so they were quite happy. And they bought the Irish, the Irish Examiner. I mean, it's a small market. The only people out there that were, for me, that were doing anything at all to, uh, to along the lines you've suggested, would have been local radio and local newspapers because they weren't they weren't on the gravy train. You know, and uh, you do that for a few years and then you end up where we are today. Now, um, to put this into perspective, to put this into um, uh, hard tax, uh, in June, it was a June 2020, June 2021, uh, I came upon um, a letter which uh, Tracy O'Mahony had uh, just literally just issued on her YouTube channel, which was a which was a letter from Beaumont Hospital specialists in the organ transplant unit saying that uh, if you are not vaccinated, you are off the organ transplant list. So fuck off. And uh, it was quite stark. And I put it out on my Twitter. And for the next three or four days, I was hammered for faking a letter, making up a letter, this couldn't be true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, over that day, over that period of time, I have the private um, telephone numbers and WhatsApp uh, links to a lot of the senior editors in, in, in mainstream media, including RT. But this particular time I said, right, this is it. Like, I mean, how far down can a country, can a society go where people who are, whose lives depend on organ transplant are being treated like lepers and being told you can't come into the hospital, you, you're not going to get an organ transplant, now go and die. I mean, then that, that's what the letter was basically saying. And I thought, my God, this is the one thing that's going to wake people up. But there wasn't a word about it on mainstream media, despite the fact that the senior editors were getting it directly from me into their WhatsApps. Fair play to you, Eddie, though. I want to say that because I follow you on Twitter and um, I was delighted, like you're one of the only ones speaking out. And it just because I, myself, I, I didn't take the jab vaccine or whatever like that. And I was kind of on edge since the whole thing came out. I was kind of, I don't know, it was like fight or fight mode, I suppose. It was like there was something to sit, sit right with me with the whole thing. And fair play to you for coming out and speaking out because it meant a lot to me anyway because it was it was madness to be honest with what went on. Well, 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 I appreciate you saying that, but remember, I didn't come out as an unvaxxed person. Like I, I, I came, I was, I was outraged when I saw the um, vilification and demonization was coming next. When, when I saw the uh, the the doll pass. 
the uh, what I call the leper pass legislation. And then, you know, uh, the president signed it in instead of calling a council of state around the issue. I said, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. I, I really didn't think that we would stoop so low as to ins- as to insist that people could move around Ireland on the basis of a, of a badge, except it was actually it wasn't a yellow badge. It was a badge on their mobile phone. I mean, like once you reach that point in a society, you, you, you really are breaking it. You're breaking it down. And then we had a number of the uh, journalists writing a number of radio uh, broadcasters um, vilifying and demonising unvaxxed people as if somehow they were carrying a, a disease with them when, when actually the evidence didn't present. There was no science to support it at all. It was all just fear and promulgating fear. And, um, uh, and of course, all that is conveniently forgotten now. You know, but that's what happened. And uh, Ireland came close, like, I mean, if it wasn't for some restraint um, by the state, uh, Ireland came very close to, um, to to taking a step in a direction that would have been very, very serious. You know, if the, if the state was enforcing um, those type of passports by physical force, which they have done in Australia, they have done in Canada, uh, we would be dealing with a much more toxic legacy from our engagement with the pandemic uh, than we are today but it still hurts i mean i'm not on i'm not i'm not unvaxxed but it still hurts me to see the way we treated our own and the way we treated those people on the organ transplant list you know it wasn't until it finally got out in mainstream media in a small piece in the irish examiner by a young journalists seconded from the irish times and within 24 hours uh, beaumont had reversed do you know why? Because the politicians got shit scared. It had come out. Get that story off the front page. The whole thing could come apart. You know, it had nothing to do with the actual people who were waiting on organ transplants, who were unvaccinated. A lot of them under medical advice couldn't be vaccinated and they were going to be treated like that by their own. That to me just is beyond the beyond beyond beyond. Yeah, especially with everything that went on with it. Like, I don't want to go too much onto it or it will be censored, mm. as you know yourself on YouTube. Yeah. But like, the you know, the, the narrative changed all the way through. You know what I mean? You're going to be you're going to be bulletproof. Then, well, you might need more. Like the whole thing went on and on. It seemed that the government were working in tandem. But to me personally, I, I don't know. It looked like they were all in lockstep across Europe and it, well, especially across the Western world. And what you touched on there, there was a concerted effort with all the media. It was like they got an email that morning. And you had Joe Duffy, Pat Kenny, Kira, and um, it was a Joe. I can't think of his name. Joe came on. Uh, he was on. Joe yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, 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 like that to me seemed like, and I know it's a bit conspiratorial, but it just seemed like there was they all got a memo. Well, I think. It. Are you going to invite your family around for Christmas if they're unvaccinated? Like well, that's I, where it went. Like. <laughs> well, I don't think. I know it felt that way, but I don't think that's possible. There's there's just too many people involved in a conspiracy. I think it's basically pretty straightforward. I think an awful lot of it was 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 just a build up of fear, mass psychosis. I think a lot of the people that made those comments may never regret them, may never accept that they've that they stepped way over the acceptable line, but were actually at the time. Uh, they had lost control of their critical thinking and their sense of right and wrong and uh, and 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 gave what they thought was an authentic authentic credible view but we know it was completely the opposite uh, and and the evidence is coming out now in all in all in all sorts of ways uh, now that it's kind of in the rearview mirror and it's safe to do so 
Um, uh, that's just the way it is. I don't see them as being involved in that, but there is definitely on an international level, right at the very apex of all of this, decisions being made by very powerful people, probably not even politicians, uh, people that are uh, people that are influencing trends, supranational organisations like the World Economic Forum, the Bank for International Settlements, the Dave Osman, let's call him that. Um, uh, it, there was definitely decisions being made uh, that were that were influenced by power, by the acquisition of more power um and money and profit um it was, that's def i mean that's definitely occurred and there was definitely an attempt uh to to sustain that and it, it failed yeah yeah most definitely like what we we're just saying there what what i noticed through the whole thing is you can see how the likes the salem witch trials might have happened or you can see how the people of germany maybe might have been weaponized against the jews in world war ii or whatever kind of way because I, I, as sure as we're here, when that when all that was going on with Joe Shea and the whole lot, it really I I felt anyway we were one shade away from, like if the government had a call like unvaccinated, we put in camps, everyone would have nearly agreed with them. Now not saying it, but the vast majority would have said, "Well, geez, no, they should have just done." You know, it was really that close in my mind that people would have nearly waved us off <laughs> to the camp, and, well, and then yeah. it just turned on a, on a dime. Then, like within a week, then the whole thing was lifted. It was just like what. Have just happened. <laughs> well, you can get these, you know, you you you'll get these moments, you know, when um, these things can happen to a society. But when the moment is over, like we have to face ourselves and say, well, we must make sure that we never get to that point again. And by by openly discussing it and being prepared, and the only way I think you can openly discuss it, you have to be prepared to forgive those people for doing what they did. I don't think there's anything to be gained. In, in treating them the way they treated um, uh, people that were unvaccinated, I think they have to be forgiven. Uh, and in the and in the course of giving them forgiveness, they'll that 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 it should help them come to their senses. But when you attack people, uh, it, 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 the resistance just grows to 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 the change. But like these things can happen. I'll tell you a, a tangential story that is a true story. Um, I was asked by um, a client friend, a dentist who since passed away, to go and see a close friend of his in Cork, this is some years ago, who turned out to be Gerald Goldberg. He was in his 90s. Uh, to ask him, would, would I call in to see him? He wanted to talk, he had some financial issue he wanted to talk about. So, but really, when I went to see him in his house in Ben Truda, in the Rochestown, on the Rochestown Road in Cork, um, I went to see him. Um, he was there on his own. He didn't have an alarm system. He had a golf driver at the front door. He was in his 90s. His wife was dead 30 years. His children were in their early 70s. And all he wanted to was somebody to talk to. That's really what was that I figured that out pretty quickly. I spent the afternoon having a wonderful conversation with an extraordinary person who has since passed away while he introduced me to his 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 collection of rare books, which was just a treat. A very a, a man of great um a great intellect. And uh, uh so we so we're chatting away and he told me he was the Jewish Lord Mayor of Cork. He told Fianna Fáil, he told me that during the Second World War, now I've said this publicly once and it's it was just dismissed, but this is, I'm saying this here, this is a first-hand account by me, not 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 known for not calling a spade a spade, a first-hand account from Gerald Goldberg, Jewish Lord Mayor of Cork, who lived through the Second World War. He told me on that afternoon in his house in Bentruden, a couple of years before he died, that during the Second World War, 
de Valera's plan in the event of a German invasion was the Jews of Ireland were going to be rounded up and put into a camp in Cavan. And when the Germans arrived, they were going to be told, well, they're all up there. That was the policy, the de Valera's policy. Now, you might say, oh, my God, like that, that that's that's not possible. And if I heard it from a third party, I'd say I, I just couldn't see that happening. I'm telling you, that's what that's what um, that's what he told me. And uh, I'm just saying that there are times in extreme of extreme fear when decisions are being made, even by Democratic, even by Democrats that just defy you know, what we regard as normal human standards. And and we lost the control of ourselves during the pandemic for the same reason. But we've got to be prepared to forgive each other for the mistakes we made and the hurt we caused in, in throwing brickbats at one another. Otherwise, we learn nothing. Yeah, no, that was a great story. Thanks for that. I never actually heard that one before. Now, that's very interesting. You don't mind taking a few questions from no, um, not at all. listeners? Brilliant. Not at all. Thanks. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Gavin. Uh, uh, thanks, Eddie, for joining our, our podcast tonight. The question I have is, with Simon Coveney and Pascal Donoghue, part of the Bilderberg Group, do you feel the Irish um, are being led towards the Ukraine-Russian Russian, uh, conflict, that our state of neutrality is being compromised by these individuals that are participating in these groups and with the likes of Leo Varadkar and the WEF as well. Do you think our neutrality is being slowly ebbed away from us? I don't really have any particularly strong views. I I, 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 I thought that the um, the day after the invasion of, um, of of Ukraine, I was actually being interviewed by all people, by Mario Rosenstock, and I was saying that this has nothing to do with the kinetic war on the ground in the Ukraine. This is the uh, the bullseye here is Germany, and the weapon is energy, and the and the period is going to be winter 2022. I think it's actually going to be winter 2023 now. Uh, and that all turned out to be uh, re- reasonably accurate. It wasn't original thinking by me. I was getting that from geopolitical experts. I spoke on the day of the, on the day of the invasion, and uh, and um, and so the the problem is that uh, you know once these you know if you do get any kind of a conflict in Europe and it escalates, it's going to escalate into nuclear conflict. Neutrality becomes rather academic, uh, in 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 those type of exchanges. Now that doesn't mean that we should be taking. You know, you know, we have neutrality. It's worked for us in the past. Uh, it's our own kind of brand of neutrality, but we have an inability to defend our own uh, our own shores. I think we need to be open to change, but certainly um, uh, it needs to go through again an open public discussion to get public opinion on the matter, and and also to bear in mind that um, warfare is, uh, is is the ultimate failure of uh, of politics. And discussion and debate uh, across, you know, kind of opposing country ideologies, and uh, so we need to, we need, to, we need, to, we need to keep talking to one another to avoid that and trading with one another. Um, and 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 the idea, of course, you know, for anybody that studied the uh, the geopolitics on the ground, the idea of the goodies and baddies here is is non-existent. You know, Putin was definitely, you know, sparked into uh, in, into reaction to what was going on on his borders. You know, he's made that quite clear. And um, but but also, um, I mean, it's quite clear that the uh, the Russians have been planning this for a long, long time. So for me, uh, like we are engaged in an economic and financial war with Russia. Uh, we, we may not have troops on the ground, but we're, we've certainly taken a side in this economic and financial war. Yeah, that's for sure.
Oh, Yeti, thanks for your uh, time tonight and your uh, insights into the, uh, the situation that we're facing. Um, just a premise to the, the question, really. Um, we know that the organizations like the WAF have bragged about having uh, politicians basically in their pocket. Um, yeah. You know, Radka is a, a young uh, leader of the WEF. Um, with that in mind, um, are, the, are the government, uh, particularly the Irish government, but all governments all over the world, are they merely taking direction from globalist elites? Um, and is democracy in its truest sense now dead? And is there any remaining remnants of a representative government remaining in Ireland, in your opinion? Well, geez, that's a big question. Um, I mean, th there's definitely some of the, um, the, I mean, there's definitely huge influence on certain uh, leaders. I mean, Trudeau and Ardern, to me, would be the standouts um, uh, of the, sort, let's call it, the, uh, the ideology of the World Economic Forum. Um, you know, I mean, you could argue that on, on the front end of it, it's a talk shop and it seems to be, you know, an exchange of ideas and talking about the future and for the benefit of humanity and all the rest of it. Um, but actually, there is an inner core there. I, the, for me, Schwab comes across as a bit of a pantomime character, almost like a distraction. We're all aiming, you know, or aiming our brickbats at him and he keeps sticking his chin out and taking them. So I, I just find that curious. You know why is that? Why is that the case? Because um, because if this was being done, it, it it's not going to be done by a clown like him. You know it's been done by far more serious, uh, far more serious players who are certainly not apparent on the outside, and that would be my concern. Uh, as for any Irish person being uh, kind of in the same league as Trudeau and Ardern, I don't know about that. Um, I'd I'd rather hope not. Um, they certainly haven't been singing the praises. Of the World Economic Forum, but I would I would see things in the ether that maybe other people might. And for example, there's been a lot of promulgation uh, in Ireland of uh, modern monetary theory that you can just borrow whatever you like. It doesn't matter. It's just a loop between the central bank and the central bank with the uh, with the national government and back again. And uh, that's Bernie Sanders type thinking. Uh, and that's but that was promulgated a lot uh, on many pulpit addresses uh, through the Irish Times. Uh, over the over the pandemic, uh, despite the fact that people like me, who are more on the Austrian side, thinking that's nuts, it's going to end in near a high inflation. Now that it has, uh, you know, nobody's nobody's drawing attention to the fact that we were we were we were being produced with a lot of indoctrination about modern monetary theory and the thinking of the left over the period. Um, but now that high inflation has arisen. Uh, you know, everybody's suddenly an expert on inflation. The same people that were actually promulgating the ideas that caused it. You know, so um, so there, so so is it is it is it is it is it kind of like um an impulse that's going on through the World Economic Forum, a kind of an ideology that people are picking it up and running with it, and they're excited and about it and all the rest of it, or is it an actual organised conspiracy through the World Economic Forum? I don't know the answer to that question. I'd rather think it's more profit and uh, just just the impulse. Some people have an impulse for power that the rest of us just find very hard to understand. Sorry, Eddie, do you think democracy is currently under attack right now in 2022? I do, yeah. I do. but dem democracy is always under attack one way or the other, but I do, I think it's under a very serious threat. And that's why I said that the big the big uh, fight is going to be uh, fought between those that love liberal democracy and individual freedom and those that actually prefer a big centralised state and an authoritarian control, a kind of a paternalistic approach to the organisation of human affairs. So, yeah, I do. I think it's under very serious threat.
But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean the other side are going to win. It just means that our side isn't organised yet. Yep, that's very positive. Fair play, um, Simon. You have a question there. Hey, Hordings. Um, yeah, with regards to our energy, you said we're in a war with with uh, with Russia. You know, and you said we're taking sides. Um, regarding our two peace-powered energy plants in the Midlands, mm. if they were fired back up, how much would that be able to supply us? And uh, like, we'd be less reliant on Russia's energy then, you know, to supply our well, needs. Yeah, the problem is that we've signed this um, climate change agreement and committed ourselves to CO2 reduction targets. And uh, it's already started in the agricultural sector. And they, they, they got a... You know, they were they were supposed to go for far uh, harder targets than they finally agreed with the government, which means that the rest of us now have to carry these harder targets. All this is based on UN models, as you know, which is suggesting that human human CO2 is, uh, which, by the way, is causing the greening of the world, uh, is somehow damaging. Um, I don't entirely uh, agree with that or I'm not quite convinced about that. I think that maybe, may, maybe or maybe not. It's a hypothesis, but it's now generally agreed worldwide. This is what we must do. Uh, I think that when the dust settles in 10 or 15 years time and we find that the um, polar bears are doing fine and the, we're greening fine and, um, you know, the sea rise, the sea levels haven't come up, that people are going to look back and scratch their heads and say, Jesus Christ, how did you manage to... Um, to convince yourself that the world was coming to an end in 10 years time on the basis of a presentation by a teenage Swedish woman a girl, you know, she knows she's a woman, she's, she's over 18 now. And uh, I mean, we lost, lost, lost the run of ourselves. So, I mean, in terms of the Irish situation, you know, we, we've, we, we've closed down the peat plants as part of our uh, commitment to reducing CO2. Uh, so therefore to open them back, back up again, uh, would mean we would be in default of our international treaties or, we would open them up again and then we would have to reduce our CO2 in other ways, you know, uh, which which could curtail um, people's movement and transport and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's unfortunately where we are. And we, we don't have any, there's no there's no economic, there's no party in, in the Dáil yet prepared to, 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 to start talking about having a much closer re-examination of these uh, of this of of this of the of the UN models and and see and uh, and that um you know to make sure that we're definitely on the right path here because um I mean there may be there may be warming going on I mean I think that's reasonable but it doesn't mean that it's been caused by um by CO2 in the way that it is presented in the way that it is presented 100% like like I I think there's a statistic with CO2 found in the atmosphere it's something like 0.4% or something this whole net zero, like it just seems like a like an ideology, you know, like there, there are there. Well, what? you know, I, I I follow the scientists. I I read their stuff. The people that are good scientists producing contrary uh, contrary science that are just drowned out and then vilified by their profession. It's the same template that went on during the pandemic, just uh, an intolerance of any kind of um, uh, alternative science. And um, and they're there, and they're very interesting people, and they're very credible people, and um, they're not doing it certainly for the benefit of their, uh, of their, of their, of their reputations, you know. So um, they're making they're making strong cases, uh, and uh, there's you know there's people there's reformed environmentalists as well, that uh, that are saying look yeah there are issues and they need to be addressed, but you know we're not in a climate catastrophe, you know we're not the the, the whole extinction rebellion thing is just extremism gone mad, you know. Yeah, um, I'm just conscious of the time. I just let yeah. in maybe two more 
two more quick questions because their hands are up their ages. Stephen, can you come here and then we'll take Emily next. I know we mightn't get to them all, but sorry about that. Uh, cheers. I presume I'm the Stephen you were talking about, Kev. Um, uh, Eddie, first of all, I just want to tell you that uh, I was a conspiracy theorist from a child and I used to watch you on our... <laughs> I remember, and I remember, I remember coining the term as a teenager, Eddie Hobbs for Minister for Finance. I finally get to say it, yeah. Um, but but uh, he, here's a deep a deep kind of lying question. Um, yeah. But uh, in the event where they manage to get their claws in the digital uh, social credit score, uh, universal basic income, where the, where they are slowly getting the population on board, and it seems all hope is lost. I know for a fact I'm going to be in a shed making coins and I'm going to try and start a fucking currency, right? <laughs> would you consider in your spare time writing up how that would work, how we should do it? Uh, like my idea is making a copper punt with stag on it and uh, putting it out there. You can get copper anywhere. Private currencies, well, firstly, um, the question is, would I do it? I wouldn't be the expert on it, but there are plenty of experts on private currencies. I don't mean cryptocurrency kind of a blockchain. I'm talking about old-style currencies. Uh, private yeah. currencies have, have existed. Whenever there's been currency crisis, private currencies pop up, and they can have quite a lot of beneficial effects in local communities that use them. Yeah, can they go national? That's the question, and uh, that's a different thing altogether. That's a different set of challenges, you know? How would the economics of uh, like an anarchy style <laughs> people making their coins themselves and trading them? Yeah, the the thing you have to remember in, in all of this before we ever get to this point, right? If you get to that point, you, you begin to see that the definition of a, of state power, like, is this legitimized violence? So the state can get tough, and yeah. the state has got tough when when it reaches if it, it believes it is an existential threat. And and this happened in the 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 thirties um, uh, when when gold the holding of gold in the United States was deemed to be an offence and people were encouraged as well for national reasons and so on to hand in their gold which they did in large numbers to try and get through uh, th those tough days so like uh, so it's perfectly possible for a state if it's under threat to say that uh, that anything other than what we're producing uh, is 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 illegal. Now, I'm not saying that would happen in Ireland and simply saying this can be done. Um, and the ultimate test of a currency is it is acceptable to pay taxes in it. And which is one of the reasons why cryptocurrency isn't going to is going to isn't going to replace fiat currencies for the time being, because you can't pay your taxes in it. So it's not acceptable. It's not legitimate. It's not it's not deemed to be legitimate by the state itself. So if we do get it to a situation like that and it comes down to that, it just then means that this that the people then are faced with the fact that the state itself is no longer representing the people and it needs the state itself needs to be taken down and removed and replaced which which can happen it's called revolution right i don't think we're going to reach that point anytime soon here but i do think that it needs to be resisted and if necessary that resistance has to be tough not ringing joe duffy tough or you know turning up at the um garden of remembrance and having to walk down um uh, O'Connell Street. I mean, it has to be tough, right? Uh, it has to be very hard on the, on the people that want to implement this type of change on us. I don't mean breaking the law, but it needs to be tough, and uh, we have the capacity in us to be tough uh, without 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 being violent. Um, in the past, 
and we can do did it again. Did you see there, Eddie, at the weekend they had a massive protest? I know I, I meant to end the question, but did you see there at the weekend had the massive protest for the cost of the energy crisis, cost of living, you had people before profit, Sinn Féin, um, a lot of unions. That It seems like, you know, these mainstream, I would say, organisations are trying to get out in front of the anger yeah, of it. the people and pivot them. You know, and they're not going to talk about ESG, the 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 climate change, the yeah. all that's, the real reasons why we're in this position. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the professional protest movement, people that protest because that's what they do for a living. There's nothing as joyous as marching ahead of the gang uh, with your flag, waving and and singing whatever whatever your anthem is. That's the that's the that's they get their rocks off on that. And the worst thing they fear the most is somebody coming up with a solution to whatever the issue is. So, for example, when you talk, when you look at the water protest, which was a very important moment in Irish uh, social history, the leaders of the water uh, protest movement showed no engagement whatsoever in the fact that Irish water itself, water or wind or natural resources are not owned by the Irish people. They're owned by the state. They were robbed off us in the 1937 constitution by de Valera. And what he did was he made the, he made the state the custodian of the natural resources of the people, but then made the state non-justicable. It couldn't be taken to court by the very people it was acting as custodian for. So Irish water is owned by the state, which is not the Irish people. The Irish people predate the state by hundreds of years, arguably thousands of years. We owned our natural resources under the British, under the Magna Carta, and we owned our natural resources under the 1922 Constitution. And since 1937, it's the state owns the natural resources, not the people. And as far as I know, we're the only people in Europe that have allowed that to continue. And when that central point has been made to leaders of the water movement, that's what you should be demanding. We should be demanding a constitutional referendum to hand back the ownership of the natural resources of Ireland, including water, to the Irish people, who are the owners of the natural resources. We're not interested in it. Not interested. Just interested in the protest. So you're right. These things are hijacked. For 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 reputational capital gain, by by you know by by people. That's what they do, and they're very good at it. How are you doing, everybody? Hi, Eddie. Um, I have actually two questions for you to for you, if you don't mind. Uh, the, the the first one is you saying that the people who are going to lose people, which is happening, and it's going to escalate over the cold months. So, do you think they should be forgiven? No, what I'm saying is no. I, I, I'm not talking about a blank, blanket forgiveness for people that have committed a crime. I'm saying that there was a lot of people said things and did things in the national media over the course that were driven by fear and should be forgiven if we're to learn anything from it. But obviously, where people have knowingly committed a crime, there needs to be a punishment for that crime. There needs to be due process on it. So I would make that distinction very, very clearly. Um, you just won't give uh, criminality a blank check because you just get repeated criminality. There has to be consequences. Yeah, thanks a million. Um, sorry, Richard. No, we're just going to we've been we've really gone over time here, Richard. So we'll just leave it at that. Thanks okay. a million, Eddie, for coming on. Really informative, and um, it was great to have you. You're very welcome, and uh, thanks for putting up with me for as long as you did. And uh, wish you all well. And um. I would just say, in final, finally, look, we'll get through all this. It's an interregnum. It's going to be very rocky. Um, but the best way of, of getting through it is having a framework for understanding what's really happening. And um, it, because it's much more frightening when you don't. You know, this is going to come as a major shock to people as it unfolds over the next uh, year or two. You know, they, they, because they have no framework of understanding it. 
and uh, that's when um, that's when you know people that are that are on here and others have to step forward in their own communities with the voice at the microphone and say, "Remember, I was trying to t- tell you this. No, no, you're seeing it unfold, and listen to me now. That'll be the wake up moment when it gets personal." Thanks a million, Eddie. That's brilliant. Okay, um, guys. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye bye.